Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Father, we praise you. You are our Savior, our King, our only hope. As the video said, Lord, the only true liberty that we have is the liberty so Lord, I just pray today, this morning, that you would open our hearts to your word. Lord, help me to be your humble servant and to, to present your word clearly. Lord, don't have my words anything but, but what you want me to say. Have them go out and touch hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to hear hear your word clearly. Apply it to our lives. We praise you. We praise you, God. You are God, our Savior and King. Your name is higher than the rising sun. No name above any other name. We praise you. It is in your name. Amen. Go ahead, please. It was the night of March 5th of 1770 and in the streets of Boston it had been snowing and, and tension was thick in the, in the air between the colonists and the British soldiers who had occupied the town. War had not broken out yet. In fact, there was really, there was just tension. There was a private, his name, a British private, his name was Hugh White. He, he was standing guard over the Custom House on King Street. The Custom House was the place where, the, uh, where, where a lot of transactions were, were done between the, 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 the king and his companies and the colonists. But he was there protecting it, doing his job. And it was about 8 o'clock at night, and he was approached by a small group of very frustrated young male colonists. And they come up, and their words are passed back and forth. And the reports kind of vary exactly what occurred, but we we know that there were some insults that were thrown, and taunts, and and things were exchanged, and things were said. And and then a a small physical uh, confrontation ensued, and... And all of a sudden, the church bells started ringing. This was 8 o'clock at night. It wasn't, this was not normal for this to happen. So the church bells start ringing, and all of a sudden, all these colonists are flooding out into the streets wondering what's going on. And then someone, and we don't know if it was a British soldier, soldier or if it was a colonist, they pick up a snowball and they throw it. More snowballs begin to be thrown. Both mostly from the colonists. And then all of a sudden we have ice and oyster shells that are being thrown at the British soldiers. And from there, the violence started to escalate. Threats started to escalate. Private White calls for reinforcements. Now, if this story is true, and we have no reason to believe that it's not, 
Something as small as a snowball may have been the shot that was heard around the world. We know that term, if you study history, the shot around the world was the beginning of the Boston Massacre, and it was a place where the, it started. The American Revolution started, but it actually may have started with something as small as a snowball. And this is the same case we're seeing when we're in a new series of Galatians. The book of Galatians is starting today, and we will find that the book of Galatians is similar to this event that happened in our history. That this one small little book, only, only six chapters long, are going to have consequences that are very, very wide, very enormous to this day. The teachings from Galatians are enormous for the faith. The American Revolution ended up giving us, number one, our liberty, and it took 13 colonies that were completely separate, not just on, on, on and by territory, by location. They were separated religiously. Each state had a different, a different religion. They held to a different denomination. But it took those 13 colonies and brought them together as one nation with liberty from England. And what we're going to find here, as we go through the book of Galatians, we're going to see that this letter also will secure our Christian liberty and the unity of the church in the gospel. You know, the church throughout history, and I, even today, the church throughout history has had a tendency to lose the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we, we, we just lose it. I, I think we lay it down and we wander away from it. It's been a problem from the beginning of the church, from the very start, and it continues today in many of our churches. Today, we see the gospel being used to say that God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be prosperous. If you're not prosperous, there must be something wrong with your faith. Or people, sometimes we, we equate the gospel with a political program. There's a whole, uh, a whole line of thinking of this dominion theology where they believe if, if Christians take over everything in the world, if we take over all the government, all the entertainment, all of the education, that we will usher in the kingdom of God. So it is a political tool that's used, and it's used a lot in Washington today. Something of the gospel like that. Others want to restrict the gospel to, substitution, to substitutionary atonement only. They only want to look at the fact that Jesus died for us, and that's it. And that is part of it. That's a big part of it, but that's not all of it. Others want to look at the gospel as just laws that we have to follow to be virtuous in our life, to live lives that are perfect. And in the process, we, <laughs> there are people in the world who think all we want to do is stop people from having fun. No, I don't mind people having fun. I just don't think we need to be having fun that's not good. That's not, that is not evil is what they should be having fun. See, all of these perceptions about what the gospel is, what they do is they paralyze one of the great benefits of being a believer and a follower of Christ. And that is to have what Jesus promised us, and that's a truly abundant and joyful life in Christ. So Paul is 
going to write this letter to this church. These are churches that he founded in Galatia, which is in the middle of Turkey, on one of his first missionary journeys. And he writes, if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Galatians 1, chapter 1 through 2, or uh, verses 1 through 2 is what we're going to start with. But Galatians 1. And here's how Paul starts this letter. And we it is believed that this is probably the first letter, first epistle that he wrote. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, what we're going to find out here is, and you can't really tell it in this this writing if you, unless you really start digging into it and what he wrote here at the beginning. But we're going to find out that Paul is not happy. These churches that he had started, that he had planted the gospel of Jesus Christ in, were beginning to wander away from the gospel truth. They were beginning to doubt, strain from the gospel. They were, there were people who had come into the church, and what they were doing, they were questioning Paul and his, his apostleship, and they were questioning his authority to share the gospel. Now, we've we got to understand a few things here, uh, this idea of apostle, this, what this word means. In, in Greek, it's actually apostolos, which is one, it was always believed that, that an apostle, the term meant that one who, who had seen Jesus in person, who had actually seen Jesus while he was alive, either before or after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven, who had seen Jesus and who had been commissioned by Christ to go and share the gospel. That's what an apostle is. So the only people who, by that definition, and I think that is the valid definition, the only people who could become an apostle would be those men who had actually seen Jesus. And had heard his commissioning in Matthew 28, 19. So with that in mind, I would argue that today there are no apostles. I am not an apostle. I am, I am a pastor. There's the difference. I'm not an apostle. The only apostles were in this first century. Now, we may be apostolic, okay, which means that I may be sent out. I believe that, I believe that a missionary is apostolic. The church or an organization sends them out to share the gospel. We, as people, are apostolic because Jesus sends us out to share his word and share the gospel with people. But I, unless, I know, unless you tell me otherwise, I don't think any of us have actually seen Jesus in physical form in front of us. So I cannot be an apostle. You don't call me apostle. Now, I believe, I believe that God called me to be in a, a pastor, but he didn't send me. I believe that the missionary church sent me here. You guys brought me here, and I'm, I'm here for you. Now, I'm sent out by, by God, but I have not seen Christ. So I can't be an apostle. So I kind of I hold to that traditional idea that an apostle, we do not have apostles today. That doesn't mean, though, I want to be honest with you, that doesn't mean that Jesus cannot appear to somebody today 
and send them. I believe it can happen, but it's got to be valid. It's got to be true. So Paul is what he's doing here. He's asserting that he is an apostle. But it's, as he says, it's not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. Paul is claiming that he that Jesus himself called him and made him an apostle. And also, if we if we read in this, if you look at the scripture, he says, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So what Paul is saying is that, that the, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that backs my apostleship, that backs the message that I am bringing to the churches. It lies behind his commission. Now we know that Paul never spent any time with Jesus when he was Jesus was here, either before or after. In fact, Paul talks about the, the fact that he is he is a man that has been was untimely born. He wishes that he had been around and had seen Jesus. He was around. He may have been around like a small child, but he wasn't old enough to be a follower of Christ. He wasn't old enough to be one of the twelve. You know, he he wasn't there. So he feels like he's left out. But he doesn't say he's not an apostle. He didn't spend time, but he did experience Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to the Damascus to persecute the church some more, and Jesus actually appeared to him in a bright light and spoke to him. And later on we find out that Paul goes into the desert and Jesus taught him. He says, I wasn't taught by the apostles. I was taught by Christ himself about the gospel. So he's, he's saying that I am an apostle. He's validating his position and his authority as an apostle. Now what's interesting in this, also in these verses, this, these first two verses, is the fact that Paul uses two negatives to defend his apostleship. If you read it there, he says, not from men nor through men. Now why is that odd? Well, that's odd because there's no reason to do it. In all the other places, in all his other writings where he defends his apostleship, he never says that I that I'm I'm apostle not through men, or you know not was it not through or from. Nowhere. So why would he be using these phrases? And I think the reason why is because the people in the churches of Galatia, because there's more than one church, and this was a letter that would be sent around to all the churches. I think the people in Galatia were being were being told these things by men who came from the church in Jerusalem, who were not sent by Jerusalem, because we hear, find out later they weren't sent from them, from James and the other apostles. But I think what he is doing is he's, say, he's telling them this so that they, because they believe that since these men came down from Jerusalem, from the mother church, that they hold more sway, that they're apostles because they, they, know, the, they know the real apostles. They know Peter. They know they know John. They they know James, Jesus's half brother. But Paul say no. I'm not I'm not from men, you know. 
That's not who, not from men or through them that I've been made an apostle, but through Jesus and through God the Father. And we find out that's exactly what's happening, that men are coming down from Jerusalem, questioning Paul's authority and persuading the believers that Paul doesn't even know Jesus. He's never seen him. So how could Paul be telling you these things? Now, what are they trying to tell the people? We find out later, if you go to the book of Corinthians, you'll find out what they're doing, because these are the same people. You find out that they're teaching them you have to be Jewish first before you can become a Christian. So you've got to follow all the Torah laws, and you've got to be circumcised. And that's not what Jesus taught. We fulfill the laws through Christ, because Jesus came to fulfill them, not supplant them. These men are coming into the church, and they're sharing a gospel that's not a gospel. That comes out in the next chapter. But these men are experts in what's called rhetoric. They are really good, persuasive speakers. They could, they could sell you anything. You could be in the tundra of Alaska and they'll sell you a refrigerator. I mean, that's the kind of guys they are. They are very good at, at making their point and convincing people to believe it. They're good at public speaking. Now, Paul, we know, because Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 11, 6, that I'm not a very good speaker. He's not good at speaking. You're like, man, how could someone write the things that Paul writes, and yet the people say, man, I just, just, he's just not, I don't like listening to Paul. That's not his gift. His gift is in writing. But what is amazing about that, if Paul's not a good speaker, how is it possible that all those churches were formed. I mean, you listen to Paul, people would listen to Paul like, eh, I can take him or leave him. But the Holy Spirit was the one who was speaking. It's the Holy Spirit who founded those churches. See, God, God can use anybody. It doesn't matter. But Paul had a special gift. He, he, was, he was actually, had actually seen Christ. And what's interesting, in 2 Corinthians, he calls these, and he's being sarcastic, super apostles. Not just apostles, super apostles. The ones who are coming down and persuading the church away from the true gospel. Now, I want to tell you, I've been doing a lot of watching and reading and following. The same thing is happening today. There are pastors in these big churches And I have nothing against the big church. If we had 2,000 people here, I'd be perfectly happy. If we have 200 people here, I'd be perfectly happy. If we have 20 people here, I'll be perfectly happy. It's not about the size. It's about the message. It's about the gospel being preached. But there are pastors in some of these real popular churches that are dynamic speakers. And they use the Bible and they they weave it into their teachings. And and they may stir up people's emotions. And the crowds, you know, they get into this fever pitch. Now what we find out, if you do the research, you find out that there is a certain section of the church that's what I call the mosh pit. That is the place where if you come early enough, you can sit right down there in front where you can actually feel the spit from the pastor's mouth. And your job, for the honor of sitting there, is every time the pastor says something profound, you clap and you say, oh, and that's what they do. It's canned. It's constant. Constant. Or another thing I've noticed that they do is, and I want you to listen, listen. 
What do you hear? You hear the fan running, right? These pastors, a lot of times, will put music behind them to manipulate. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I want to tell you. Well, let me just, just keep going here. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some. I'll give you some an instance here. But what they do is they teach a gospel of self-improvement. They make the, this gospel all about you. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you are. Here's what here's here's what God's going to do for you if you do this. It's self-improvement. It's me-centeredness. And, and they use the scripture out of context. It becomes all about you instead of about Jesus and about the story. There's one pastor. I'm not going to name him. It's not anybody around this area. He's teaching on going through the Red Sea. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, if you really want to study what the Scripture is, you, you should know that the Old Testament is meant to be is meant to be images and foretellings of the New Testament. Things in the Old Testament point to the New Testament. So he's saying, though, he says that when they went through, he's talking about them going through the Red Sea. And then he says, well, what Red Sea are you going through right now? Because you're coming through dripping. No, that's not what that story is about. And in fact, we know what that story is about because Paul talks about it. That story is about baptism. In fact, Paul says the Israelites were baptized into Moses by going through the Red Sea. You see, you can't take an Old Testament story. We can't take an Old Testament story like David and Goliath and say, well, who who are your Goliaths? God's going to fight them for you. Just take that rock and sling it at them. That's not the point of that story. That story is talking about how God interacted with us, what God did, not what we do. Peter talks about the story of Noah is reflective of baptism. That he and his he and his family were baptized by water, by, by making it through the flood. You can't, you can't just pick a story in the Old Testament and apply it to your life. That's called ISO Jesus. And I think a lot of these pastors are narcissists. They're narcissistic about Jesus. They think they are Jesus. Because in the process of doing this, what happens is it becomes all about the experience. You know that there, there are churches that will build a roller coaster on stage to prove a point. Now, there's nothing wrong with a roller coaster, but do you have to have it on stage? Or how about a church that drives a Lamborghini out on stage? Pretty cool, huh? It's all about the experience. What does that have to do with the gospel? I, I listened to this message, by the way, and the whole point is getting revved up. It's all about you. It's all about getting you revved up. So what does Paul say about these people? In 2 Corinthians, this is what he says, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond 
to their deeds. Now, I want to be honest with you. I do not believe that these pastors actually are doing this deceitfully. I just think that they have been trained and they're taught that this is how you present the gospel. You want people to react. You want people to be involved in the story, so you have to make it about them. It's not about them. I have said this over and over again in the church. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not about what you did and what you do. It's about what he did and what he is doing. We just get the privilege of being part of it. See, the churches in Galatia were becoming pharisaical. A Pharisee is somebody who's a hypocrite. They, 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 they think that God is going to do something for them based upon what they do. It's a give and get. If I do this, God's going to do this. If God doesn't do that, then I must have done something wrong. Oh, I've got trouble in my life. What I, read the book of Job. Our Saturday morning group is just now getting into where God responds to him. It's like, wow. <laughs> but the whole thing is, well, Job, you must have been, you just done something evil. We know Job did nothing. And yet he still had this ter- these terrible things happen to him. It's not about what you do for God and what you, so you're going to get something. But the Pharisees would diligently pursue worship, orthodoxy, morality. I mean, these are good things, right? It's, it's good to look for orthodox things. It's good to be moral. It's good to, good to actually try to live a morally good life. That's not the point. The point is they were doing it, but they didn't understand God's grace. You cannot earn it. Nothing I do will get me God's grace. What I do for God is a response to the grace that I've already received freely. I know that doesn't make any sense. Because that's not the way our world works. But that's the truth. God's grace is free. See, for them, for a Pharisee, it's all about the experience. The problem with the experience is the more I get a high from thinking that I've experienced the Holy Spirit and experienced God, the more I want it. And the more I'll go and I'll fake it. And that's what happens. We get to the point where we can't, I mean, we don't want everybody around us to think that we're not spiritual enough, right? No. The only way out of Pharisaism is the gospel. We have to reject our own righteousness, trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I cannot do enough to be perfect for Christ. I need to trust in his righteousness that's put on me. Remember we put on his armor? Yeah. His armor is shiny, solid. My armor has has chinks in the armor, fallen apart, rusted. His armor we put on. His righteousness. Now, in the process of that, then when I put that on, I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to live up to His righteousness as best I can, but He knows I'm going to fail, so what does He do? He gives us grace. He gives us grace. 
You know, we say that God loves us, yet we secretly feel that His love and our salvation is contingent on how we are doing in our Christian life. God's love doesn't change. He loves you completely. He loved you when you were a sinner. He had done nothing to get His love. See, the tendency in churches today is to be performance-based, and we don't know how to live by grace. That's what Galatians is going to teach us. So these men are coming down. They're attacking Paul's authority. And that authority, that, that attack is actually an attack on the gospel. We'll see that Paul is going to lift up his voice with passion. Not, not just to, he's not just trying to defend himself. He's trying to defend the truth of the gospel that he shared with these people. These people that he loves dearly, these are people he knows. He met them. He founded their churches. He planted those churches. But what is the message of the gospel? And Paul gives it here in verse 3 of Galatians 1. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the gospel is the manifestation of the grace of God. It is the, the gospel shows us God's grace. This idea of grace actually goes back to the Old Testament. It's the idea of God taking the initiative to fulfill humanity's greatest need. And, and the, great, the best example I can see of this is you think back to in, in Egypt. The Israelites are in slavery. They need to be free. And does Moses go in and smack Pharaoh around? And do they rebel with a big rebellion? And fight? No, they don't. God takes care of it. See, the Israelites were not perfect people. I don't think they deserved coming out of slavery. I think they deserved, they deserved to stay in slavery. But what does God do? His people are crying. Some of his people are crying out to him. So he comes down. He goes through Moses. And he... He confronts Pharaoh, ultimately taking the firstborn of all the firstborn children and of the animals in Egypt. But God made a way if the Israelites would actually take a lamb that they had taken in their home, slaughter it, put the blood over the doorstop, doorstop the, the door, the lentils, and the top. Lentils are the sides and the top. If they do that, then the, the angel of death will pass over that house. That's grace. They deserve death. They deserve to be enslaved. But what did God do? God provided a substitute for them so that they did not have to die. Their firstborn did not have to die. Great image of what Jesus does for us. But God is fulfilling humanity's greatest need. He's restoring our relationship with God this relationship was torn apart in the garden by Adam and Eve. God is restoring it. Grace, the, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. God, doesn't, God does not have to give me grace. He chooses to do so because he loves me. 
God pours out His grace upon us without the slightest thought of what He's going to get in return. Not a single bit. And not even thinking about the fact whether we deserve it or not. It's like a father who who has to discipline his son. His son, let's say his son is 16 and got a speeding ticket. Bad enough that he's going to end up in jail. And the father says, no, I'll go in jail. I'll do it for my son. And that's what that is. Before a person even believes and trusts in Jesus for their salvation, you know, we are enemies of God. We are under God's wrath. There's no peace between us and God when we don't believe in Jesus Christ. Yet, God sets His grace on each person, enabling them to believe. Understand, I can't even believe if it wasn't for God. He gives me that ability. And the sinner is no longer at odds with God. See, Jesus Christ, our only Savior, has brought us peace. And that's why Paul says, grace and peace to you. The grace of God and the peace that comes from knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. And this idea of grace reinforces our, underst- our, our peace, reinforces our understanding of grace. We are hostile. There's hostility between us and God. Between fallen humanity and God, there's this hostility. You see it in today. You see it in today's world. We're going to be, uh, one of the first things we're going to be talking about in the new Sunday school class is social justice and biblical justice. And you'll see the animosity and the hatred in the world towards God. God removes it through Jesus Christ, through what He did on the cross. And so Paul, in combining these two terms, he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of taken an Old Testament blessing that Aaron gave. Um, it's from the Numbers, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And this is, a, this is a, a blessing that I give my kids every night. After, we, after I read with them and then I pray over them, I give them this blessing. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What an awesome blessing. And that's what Paul is saying. Grace and peace be to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way we can have that peace is by the gospel. By believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Because, remember I said, the tendency is in the church today to make the gospel me-centered. Just listen to some, some, of the, some of the sermons out there. Carefully. And you'll find that, yeah, they're, they're teaching, it's, it's self-improvement. Now, granted, it's, it's better than some people like Joel Olstein, who's blatantly self-improvement. Got to make you feel good. But it's not about you. The gospel is God-centered. 
The hope of our salvation, the hope of peace in this world, the hope of our peace with God, it can only be found by God's grace. Grace forgives sin, and this alone leads us to peace that stills our conscience. The law, the legalistic legalistic observance of it, accuses us and terrifies us. All within us, we all have placed within us this sense of morality, this sense of what's right and what's wrong. When we do something we know we're not supposed to do, what do we do? We feel guilty about it. At least we're supposed to. Until what happens? We continue to do it, and then our conscience gets worn down, and we no longer feel guilty. At that point, we're lost. But the law accuses us. It terrifies us. Because what's the result of it? The result of the law, the result of breaking the law, is death. Now granted, the result of breaking man's law is that those red and blue lights that spin around and scare us half to death when they pull up behind us as we're driving down the road. Not because we're afraid of what they're going to do, but because we're afraid of what we know we've done. I want to say there's nothing to be scared of with a police officer. (laughs) He's there because we did something we're not supposed to. See, the problem is striving to perfectly keep the law, which is what we must do, brings us to no end. It doesn't provide us the peace that we need. Because we still are at enmity with God. In fact, I would argue that the more we try to keep God's law, the more joy that goes out of our lives. Because we're always looking, watching ourselves. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So doesn't striving to not sin, does that not make us better people? No, because salvation is not man-centered. Salvation is God-centered. Grace alone brings us peace. The state of life enjoyed by those who have experienced this grace, this idea of, of we, we, we find peace and comfort in Christ. Perfect peace. And that grace and peace are tied to the work that Jesus did, not that I do. So, so far in these five verses, God the Father has men- was mentioned three times. And Jesus is mentioned twice. Now, when we're mentioned, it's in connection with our need for deliverance and from this current evil age. So this, these verses are about God. They're about Jesus. And that's what the gospel about is about. Because the gospel is objective, not subjective. And I'll explain that. Because our Christianity is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about one object outside of us, not me as the subject. At the center of the gospel is this historical fact that Jesus laid down his life freely on the cross as a substitution for our sins. That is a historical fact. He did it. That is the truth. And this is what John 10 says. This is what Jesus says in John 10. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. See, Jesus was, was, this was not just a simple display of love nor an example of heroism. Jesus isn't being a hero. He is being a sacrifice. He's laying down his life for us. It's about Jesus. That's the object of our faith. 
an interesting way to look at this, a good way to look at this would be this idea of like a cross having two sides. Now, if you're an accountant, that's a T account. <laughs> Those of you who have that accounting, and you have debits and credits. I'm an accountant. I was, I, I've got a bachelor's degree in accounting. I, I, I still this day, I still think in accounting terms. It's a curse. See, our sins are placed on one side, on the credit side, because we owe them. We owe because of them. And Jesus suffered the full wrath of God against them. But on the other side, what do we get? To balance this out, we get the righteousness of Christ. And now our account is zero. Our debits and our credits, our debits and our credits equal. God sees us mercifully through the blood of Christ. One side is God's wrath against sin. The other is his mercy extended to us. We're justified. Our account is balanced. We stand in right relationship with God, not based upon anything I've done, not based upon what we can do, but based upon what Jesus has done. See, the gospel, it's not, it's not just a feeling. It's not a subjective experience. When we, when we review the gospel subjectively, it becomes exposed to interpretation. We can alter it when we look at it subjectively. When we don't look at it as being an object, being Christ, we can kind of mold it a little bit the way we want. And that's what a lot of pastors will do. I can mold it in such a way that you accept it and it makes you feel good. Yay! Amen! Woohoo! Meanwhile, you're dying in your sin. You don't know Jesus. See, but when we when we view it objectively, we are able to trust in Jesus as the object of our salvation, which is gracious and free. To view it subjectively, we have to work for our salvation. But that does never that, that work never transforms the heart. I could keep all of the rules of the Bible, and my heart can still be dark with sin. What has to happen is Jesus has to come. I have to surrender myself to Christ and allow him to change my heart. It transforms us when we view it this way because it's located in the person and the saving of Jesus Christ, which is outside of us. It's not dependent on me. Too many churches today look at the gospel subjectively, holding that God's love is captive and to our emotions and becoming dependent on our performance, which is never complete. You, you, if you're, if you're not speaking in tongues, if you're not prophesying, if you're not performing miracles, your faith is not good enough and you're, you're the problem. That's what they'll teach you. That's wrong. I am the problem. <laughs> but my problem is my disbelief in Jesus Christ and in his gospel. The other thing you've got to remember is the gospel is complete. It's important for us to realize how sufficient and complete the gospel is. John 19.30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, if sin was just a mistake... 
All we have to do is we could sort it out with like a moral fitness program, right? If you just do this many spiritual push-ups, then you'll be forgiven. You, you know, your sin will be forgiven. You made it right. We'd make a, a resolution that we wouldn't keep beginning of every year. This year, I'm going to resolve not to sin anymore. Ha <laughs> Good luck. We'll gain a little bit of knowledge. We begin training. But in fact... <laughs> Jesus died for a sin speaks of the true severity of the sin. It took death to do this. I can't just, I can't just get on the spiritual treadmill and forget my sins forgiven. Somebody has to die. And he did. Sin is so severe that it requires death. In fact, sin is death. Two sides of the same coin. But God is holy. He's given... <laughs> He has given us over to the penalty of sin and demonstrates how truly, truly holy He is. He can't, God cannot and will not tolerate sin, so He gave His Son to pay that price. So we cannot sit here and compare ourselves to each other. All we can do is compare ourselves to the holiness of Christ. It's all that matters. He gave Himself to deliver us from this present, what Paul says, this present evil age. And if you don't think this present age is evil, then maybe you're not watching the news. Maybe you're not talking to people. This is a definite evil age. And this age is dominated by a worldview that is opposed to the will of God. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Folks, we are there. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 13 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We must understand that we cannot transform this current age. We, this current age is not going to become better. We cannot sit there and say we need a Christian. We do need a Christian in the White House. Let me just say this: we do need that. But we can't say that that's the end of the, that's the end all, and that we're going to make this world such a better place just because uh, the president spots the name Jesus or somebody in Congress believes in Jesus. First of all, I question whether they really do because I haven't really. I don't. I haven't seen their works. It's the only way I can judge somebody's salvation. We can't transform. It's an age that is only going to be changed by the ushering in of Christ's return. This current age must pass away, and we must pass from it. Because, and the problem is, is this current age is all-encompassing. It is, it is we, we can't remove ourselves from it. Jesus prayed, you know, they're going to be in the world. But he prayed that we would not be of the world. We're going to be in it. But what Jesus can do for us is help us to not be of it. He frees us from this present evil age by orienting us and ourselves and away from ourselves and toward God, radically changing how we feel and act. It needs to change. Our, our, our salvation needs to change how we think about things, how we see things. He builds within us a desire for God and a passion to obey Him. See, that's part of the problem with sin. I have a passion to follow sin, not to obey. And God gives me the passion to obey. And the gospel is sufficient to deliver us both from the penalty of sin and from this 
evil age. It's complete. We cannot add anything to it. So this begs the question of how the Galatian believers are responding to this divine rescue from sin. Were they using their liberty from sin to actually serve one another in love, or is it an opportunity for the flesh? And of course, then that's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we using the liberty? And the title of the sermon was Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. Are we using our liberty to serve each other and to serve Jesus and Christ and the gospel the way we're supposed to? Or are we using it to satisfy our fleshly desires? Same thing with the world. Are we using the liberty that we got from the, get from the Constitution to live lives as good citizens? Or are we using it just to satisfy ourselves and to protect ourselves? But the liberty we get from Christ is even more than the liberty we get from the Constitution because the Constitution's liberty comes from Christ. Are we doing what we're supposed to with our liberty or are we living for our fleshly desires? We're going to bet this out in Galatians. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They celebrated Passover, and, they, they, and, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is that moment that we, he wants us to remember, when we do this, to remember what he did. Remember what he said and remember what he did. That price that was paid for our freedom, our freedom from sin, our freedom from, from enmity towards God, who, it brings us grace and it brings us peace with God. So, on that night, as they were taking the Passover, Jesus took the bread he broke it and he passed it to his apostles. And he says, this bread is my body. That's being broken for you. Understand that the, the price of sin had to be paid and Jesus paid it by giving up his physical body for us in pain, in anguish. Everything that we deserved for our sin, he took. And he says, take, eat this in remembrance of me. And while we think that may have been enough to remember, you know, man... To think of the, the Jesus being hung on the cross, his body suffering, it's more than that. Because God says there has to be a blood sacrifice. The sacrifices that were performed in the Old Testament, they, 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 they atoned for the sin, but they didn't fully atone. They covered it. And again, that is a foreshadowing of what was going to happen with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus had to give himself freely 
by choice. I don't know of too many lambs in the Old Testament that came out and said, hey, sacrifice me. Didn't happen. They were taken, raised for that purpose. But Jesus says, I freely give myself for my sheep. And he took the cup and he blessed it. He blessed God for the cup. And he said, this cup is the blood of the sacrifice that's being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for, first of all, for, for your word and for the grace and the peace that we can have from you. Not because of what we've done or how good we are or how perfect we are, because we are imperfect people. And yet you still love us. We praise you that we can worship your name and lift it up. Call on your name in our time of needs. Call on your name when things are going well and praying in all circumstances with all kinds of prayers. We thank you that you died for us to save us from this present evil age. Lord, just help us to realize, to see that we need to live by grace daily. Not in what we can do and how we do it, but in what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. Rend our hearts, Lord. Heal us. Lead us where you need us to go. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining Living Faith on our YouTube channel. My prayer is that this message today has encouraged you and strengthened your faith in Jesus Christ. We would love to connect with you, so please subscribe to our channel and hit the bell so that you get updated when we add a new message. Also, please leave any comments you might have in the comments section. We would love you to join us live for our service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. We hope you have a great day today. God bless.